Hi, everybody. This is Mark Yuskowitz, executive editor at MMM, and welcome to this week's episode of the MMM podcast, where my faithful co host Larry Dobrow and I interview people of note in and around the world of healthcare marketing. I'm flying solo again, again today from a hosting perspective, as Larry is tending to yet more magazine business. That would be the July issue, which will be dropping um, in your inboxes the second week of July. Uh, but uh, very excited about today's podcast because we're recording live at MMM Judging Day in New York City, first time we've ever done that on June 24th, 2019, where MMM has gathered 50 of the smartest, most experienced people in pharma marketing on both the agency and client sides to decide who will be the winners of the coveted uh, M&M Awards, uh, which are handed out in October. Uh, and with me, I'm very fortunate to say, is our chair of judges, April Mitchell, uh, who is um, global and U.S. head of commercial uh, for CNS Marketing and Atsuka Pharmaceuticals. Welcome, April. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sure. Uh, it's just a real pleasure to, to sit down and, and talk with April. Uh, we're going to talk about her impressions of Judging Day, uh, you know, where she sees the state of the work um, uh, from that perspective, uh, talk a little bit about, um, you know, the infusion of uh, product design and technology in healthcare marketing and how things are changing. Uh, we'll touch on digital therapeutics. And, uh, you know, we'll finish off, as we always do, uh, with, some, with some fun questions. So how does that sound, April? Sounds great. You're so cooperative. I, right now I am. <laughs> <laughs> this is the tail end of, of a long day, but uh, uh, April has been very gracious. And uh, you can hear it in her voice, but uh, she's, she's put in a ton of work today. And so without further ado, let, let's get started. Uh, let's just, I want to just touch on your background, April, because you have a very interesting one. Um, you know, you um, started off uh, in the pharma industry as, as a rep, right? Correct. Sort of take us, take us in from there into your background. Correct, yep. So I actually started as a pharmaceutical sales rep for Eli Lilly in the early 90s, uh, actually was selling Prozac here in New York City. Um, I worked in a, as a hospital rep for Lilly, and then I actually went into a home office, and that was my first um, first time that I actually did any marketing. Uh, I, I, I did that because I didn't know that this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And so uh, going out uh, to corporate and working in that space really kind of gave me a good good uh, uh, lens to really what marketing is. What I saw, though, when I was out um, in Indianapolis is all these new marketers were coming into the office, and they were coming from the General Mills, the Procter & Gamble, all these big powerhouse um, packaged goods companies, and I'm like, well, how can I get, you know, why are they here? Because mostly in pharma, everybody had to carry the bag, at least at Lilly. Carry the bag first, and then mm -hmm. you can do other things. The, the and that was because this was in the early 90s, right? In the early 90s, um, pharma companies were starting to embark on DTC advertising. But because everybody had carried the bag and was really used to only speaking to physicians, this whole you know, let's engage with patients was not was a foreign thing. So why not pull people from the packaged goods side over to do so? And that's really where I sort of got this like, well, maybe I should think about this. So I actually left Lilly, uh, went back to New York to finish my MBA because I had actually started it when I was a sales rep. Um, and upon graduating, I actually went into packaged goods marketing because I realized that this is really kind of the core of marketing, mm -hmm. marketing 101. Right. Um, that's where I got an opportunity to work on big brands. Who did you work for there? Um, I worked at Nabisco, I worked at Kraft Foods, I worked at Colgate Palmolive, and I worked at Frito-Lay. Hmm. Wow. So I got a good Some smattering of there. big brands, um, you know, had uh, TV advertising exposure, print advertising exposure working at some of these big box stores um, on the retail side. Um, spokespersons, you know, I had uh, Bill Cosby was my responsibility on the Jell-O brand. 
so really some good, good experience. But for me, um, working, whether it's food, personal products, household goods, is pretty much all the same. It was just, you know, in pharma, we have, if we're lucky, one or two launches in a five-year period or so. In packaged goods, you could have north of 20 in a, in a year. Mm-hmm. And so they're not as... Um, they're more course of business. Whereas mm-hmm. in pharma, like we do all this advanced planning, we really know the marketplace, we really know our patients, we know our customers. And so I really, with that said, you know, I think I prefer pharma more. Mm-hmm. Um, so I left and with this packaged goods experience um, on my shoulder, I got a job at a, a smaller pharma company who was looking to do DTC advertising. And so they mm-hmm. really wanted to leverage my sales experience some of the marketing experience, as well as now this DTC, this package goods experience right, right. to help. Um, and so that's really been sort of a springboard for me to go, you know, do, you know, I'm probably on my 10th kind of product launch at this point in my mm-hmm. career. Um, worked on big brands, mega brands, billion dollar brands. Uh, been, I went out, actually went back out and I was a district sales manager. So I went back and got some more experience mm-hmm. now managing groups of people. Um, and now I'm here at Otska. Um, was hired to launch um, an antipsychotic, and uh, I've been here for the past six and a half years. So it's really come full circle for me, um, mm-hmm. and I think my experience kind of taking a break from pharma and doing something different has really strengthened, I think, my, my um, skill set as a marketer. Sure, and as you mentioned, you came back into pharma mm-hmm. right at an interesting time when DTC was really exactly. taking off in the late 90s. How do you apply that thinking on the CPG side to what you're doing now in pharma? Well, I mean, I think, you know... One of the things I didn't see in CPG as much as I would have liked is a lot of those kind of crisp insights. And I think that was a gap for me that I really missed. But I, I, I do think the, the understanding of the patient, of the consumer, doing true uh, consumer segmentation, understanding how to best communicate with them, understanding what makes a good TV campaign, how do you choose the day parts where you want to advertise, um, and having that sensitivity to the patient, I think, is a little bit different. When you're just mm-hmm. carrying the, the bag and just said, I don't mean that with any disrespect. I mean, that's a difficult job. Mm-hmm. Being a sales mm-hmm. rep is not for everybody. But you're so focused on the physician. You're so focused on what the doctor is going to do. Is the doctor going to prescribe? What's my relationship with the doctor? That you really have no relationship or really true understanding of the patient. And with consumer marketing, that is your customer. You know, the CPG marketing, your customer is the buyer, it's the patient. So, oh, sorry, the consumer. So when we translate that over to um, pharmaceuticals, um, having um, more of a sensitivity to understanding that patient um, matters because that's a whole different stakeholder that if you've only carried the bag, um, you don't know. You don't. You don't really sure. pay attention to but that. Even though I should add, there's a lot of intermediaries between sure. the, the, the the patient getting the patient and getting that drug. That's right. That's right. So that's a, a clear distinction between that's right. this and CPG. Mm-hmm. But still, that sensitivity for getting to know the patient and yep. their needs and wants exactly is something that you took from that experience. Exactly. Very good. Okay. And I should also mention that you were when you came back east, you were a rep in a very interesting territory. <laughs> You were, you were in Brooklyn, which... Uh, Your home. It was my home. We did spent right. about three years there. Um, and, uh, you know, dealing with the doctors there, it's it's, it's a um, uh, very... Uh, they have their own idiosyncrasies. and uh, They do. So They do. Yeah. And really, um, having that experience working in a borough like Brooklyn, mm-hmm. borough like Queens and Staten Island, which is where I, I sold, 
um, you do have a knowledge that you cannot talk to all of your customers the same way. Right, and the right. patients are the not the same. The cultural right. sensitivities matter. And, mm -hmm. you know, that is where, you know, we have Spanish language, we have Russian language, we have Mandarin, Chinese, you know, because there's mm -hmm. certain populations based on the uh, therapeutic category that you're working in where you really needed to um, have material specific to those populations. So, um, and if you were in Manhattan Beach, which is neighboring Brighton Beach, they speak mostly Russian. Russian, but, exactly. But it could be like a Russian inflected Yiddish dialect. Exactly. Uh, so I'm not sure if your materials are translated into Yiddish, but not yet. <laughs> <laughs> there's always a next frontier. That's right. From a multicultural but it's perspective. True. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, great. So. Um, Enough about, about that. Very <laughs> fascinating background, of course. Uh, let's talk about today. Uh, you were chair of judges uh, at, at the MM&M Awards, which we're very humbled to have had you in that all-important role. And you were sitting in on a, on a conventional category um, and love to get your impressions of, of the work that you saw. Um, you know, what, what did you think of judging day? Um, you know, what, what did you take away? You know, not mentioning anything specific about the work because the shortlists are not out yet. They'll mm -hmm. be out, I think, on July 16th. But talk about your impressions from a high level and kind of work you were seeing and the progress that the industry has made. Yeah, I mean, I was in very traditional categories um, today. And what I would say is, I mean, certainly just at a high level, the enthusiasm is high. I think uh, all of us as medical marketers take a lot of pride in, in the work um, that we see in the work that we do. Um, and so, you know, sitting around the table with peers was certainly very engaging uh, with dissenting opinions, which is exactly what you want um, mm. for folks to look at things in a different way and challenge each other. Well, I think this and I think that. So that was always fun. And this wasn't my first time in live judging day, but obviously every group is different. So this was was nice to see. When I look at the um, the quality of the submissions, I think that it's very clear the quality matters in the sense that the devil is in the details. I think depending on the category that you're in, it's so important to have a strong insight and to see that threaded through the entire, um, entire package that's provided. You saw sometimes where there was videos that were provided, but it was clear that those might have been repurposed for mm -hmm, mm -hmm you know, from a company video or something, and it wasn't really relevant to the topic at hand. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes results weren't available or um, it was an incomplete submission. And so that makes it hard on the judges to really evaluate what could be a very strong um, uh, submission otherwise. So I would say that, you know, it's a lot of work for those who put the submissions together and those who are reviewing. We obviously want to put our best foot forward and recognize those who have done a good job. So I would say that, you know, there's still probably work to be done on, on ramping up the quality of the submissions um, okay. and figuring out how to make sure everybody understands how important they are. Um, but you see some great work, um, some great marketers, some great um, campaigns. Um, and a lot of great insights that, you know, feed through to really a, a wonderful um, output. Sure. And just to give my um, impressions, which, which match up largely with yours, uh, on quality of submissions, and, and we talked about this on the webcast That's that right. we did uh, in the spring, but, you know, just the importance, reiterating the importance of having a good case study video or a, AKA a submission video that's separate from the campaign videos, but just something that talks about, you know, the case study, about how you, you know, did your research, came up with these, this strategy, this was your research and insights, this was your creative execution, this is why you think the campaign was innovative and original. 
and these were the results. That's right. Is all important. That's um, right. And we, we saw some really good examples mm-hmm. of that. You know, we saw some examples where they didn't include that. They just right. included the campaign videos, and you know, that that was a little bit of a of a of a, of a letdown. Uh, also, you know, can't stress enough the importance of making sure that the objectives as written match up with the results. That's right. Just make it very easy for judges. Okay, this is what we wanted to set out to do, and here's how we feel um, we're um, laddering up to those objectives. Even if you feel it's a little bit of a stretch, if you lay it out in the submission as you see it, then we kind of have to follow. Well, they wanted to do measure this, this is how they set out to measure it, and here's the results. That's right. So, you know, obviously we understand that being in the industry we're in, you have to get creative in terms of what results uh, are shown. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I'd I'd like to add to that because I think you make a good point, which is if we have to work really hard to understand what we're reading or what we're seeing, then it probably doesn't work, right? It mm-hmm. needs to be laid out in a way that we're, we're tracking, right? We're tracking with the insight, the, the objective, um, the output, and whatever creative execution applies to that. And if, I, if, there, if there's a missing link there and I have to go back and, okay, what, what exactly are we, what, what is the objective here? What is the insight? What am I looking at? Then it probably misses the mark. So. When you've got folks who are looking at a, a submission with a clean slate who don't mm-hmm. have the history because everybody else, anyone who was close to it has been recused, now you're looking at fresh eyes. I've got to be able to follow this. And if I have to work really hard and stretch and make the linkages, um, it doesn't it doesn't always work. Right, absolutely. Yeah. And um, you know, you and I were both judging kind of very conventional categories mm-hmm. or moderating very conventional categories. I was on the, DT, uh, the disease awareness area and um, you were in another part of the marketing mm-hmm. awards uh, themselves. Uh, but you know, what was your uh, impression or your take on the um, kind of uh, trends that you take away from the kind of work that you were seeing? Uh, what was that indicative of uh, in, in terms of how pharmaceutical marketing is changing in terms of integrating like omni-channel marketing uh, and the kind of the, the customization that, that we're seeing now in multi-channel? Yeah, I mean, I think that um Technology is really, you know, finding its foothold in mm-hmm. in uh, pharma. Well, really across all everywhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. But in if we look at in uh, pharmaceuticals, or if we look at healthcare, I mean, we can start at a very high level and say, you know, healthcare is really a key topic of conversation in news all day long. And there's the most more conventional things. You know, we can talk about the opioid crisis, right? That's that's not necessarily marketing, but probably some bad marketing in there. Um, well, you know, jury's out. Um, cybersecurity and the the need to, as more data is available, the need for us as marketers and all of those who support healthcare in some way, shape, or form, having to protect the data of the patients. Um, uh, pharma pricing is coming into play because now there's a lot of you know heated discussions on how how much these manufacturers are raising prices and how this is impacting patients who are now. Um, tapering their medication and siphoning it because they can't afford it. Now, those mm-hmm. are the obvious things. The less obvious things are the ways that some of these technology companies are engaging directly with patients. And how is that going to impact, or not just patients, but actually all stakeholders. And how is that going to impact all of us as medical marketers? I'll give you some examples. We say that, you know, Siri, I just read something that says Siri now has a very, almost an over 90% accuracy rate uh, if I'm not mistaken, in, their, in its ability to recognize a drug brand name. Mm-hmm. So think about how that could play out. If I can just say a drug's name and Siri can regurgitate all this information back to me, do I need to go to a website? 
do I need to go to a web page now? I may not need to because I can just sit and scream at some box mm -hmm. in my house right. and keep it moving, right? Mm -hmm. So how does that how does that play in? Telemedicine, mm -hmm. which is now the patient interacting directly with um, their healthcare provider. So if we think that about a traditional pharmaceutical model where you've got a, a, a several sales representatives and go and engage with a physician personally, how does that change now when the, 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 the manufacturer is taken out of the equation. Right, now there's right. no samples, there's no copay cards, so all these tactics that engage a physician. Right. Now, as a patient, I'm not leaving my house. I'm just talking to you directly. Yeah. So right. I'm not engaging with the patient. The patient is bypassing all of these marketing stimuli, sales mm -hmm. stimuli, and engaging directly with your customer. And how do you influence them now when they are kind of in this space that we can't touch? Right. So these are the really fascinating implications yeah. of technology in healthcare marketing. It, exactly. Specifically, like you know, with telemedicine is taking the drug rep out of the exactly. equation. Exactly. Voice tech is taking SEO mm -hmm. kind of largely out mm -hmm. of the equation. We didn't talk about RX websites. You know, yeah, like same thing. And Roman where it takes the physician largely out of, out of the equation. That's right. So that's right. you need to spend money on reps in that, in that situation. That's right. So these are really fascinating implications. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I'll, you know, both from a marketer's perspective and a judge's perspective, because we're seeing more of that in the awards, but we can't really discuss because you and I were right. moderating more conventional <laughs> categories, so we will kind of withhold judgment on that. But I also wanted to just touch on um, digital therapeutics with you um, because it's an area that we're seeing more and you have some experience or a lot of experience in that. But, um, you know, this, the, the term digital therapeutics being a term of art that can be broadly interpreted to, to mean both um, uh, apps themselves that have FDA approval to um, remediate in certain conditions where the digital itself becomes the treatment That's right. or you have devices that are paired with more conventional medicines uh, whether you know it, it being a, a tracking um, chip of some kind mm -hmm. uh, or or an app um, paired right. with like a, a, an older conventional biological or pill um, so we, can you talk about for a minute the ramifications of that category on um, our space yeah, I mean, I think this is really unchartered territory for everyone because, right, the model has to prove itself out, and we're still in the in the infancy on, on how that's really gonna uh, how it's gonna play. Um, mm -hmm. But I think some of the things that we all have to think about is with everything that's new that comes out, there's always early adopters, right? Whether it's a new car, a new phone, a new watch, a new anything that's new. There are people that jump on new, and there are people that don't. Same thing with physicians. If you think in any category, you, having worked in the industry for a while, you know the doctors who are the first ones to try new new medication and the ones that will sit back and wait. And it's not going to be any different with digital, digital therapeutics. Why? Because now there's another component, which is the technology. Mm -hmm. And that is going to separate out physicians who are highly engaged versus those that don't want to be bothered. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine, you think about somebody who is freshly out of medical school or maybe a, a younger not in age, but maybe just in tenure as a, as a physician. So maybe they've been in practice for 10 years, five, 10 years. They're probably more likely to adapt to something that has a digital spin than somebody who's been in practice for 30 or 40 years. Sure. And so, you know, I think the, the barrier that needs to be kind of uncovered and the, the learnings that are needed is how do you get the early adopters, on, you know, to adapt to these new digital therapeutics, but also, how do you, once you get all those low-hanging fruit, how do you appeal to somebody who's been doing this for a long time? And now you're going to say, doc, you need this, mm -hmm. or patient, you need this. Because if you're talking about a technology that's going to require more, it's going to provide you with more data, 
but how you get the data is going to require more work, right? Mm -hmm. It's not going to be as yes. simple as I'm going to look at you and I'm going to see how you're doing and okay, you're presenting you, this way, you look happy, you look healthy, okay, you're fine, or your mm -hmm. cough is you know, dry. There's a whole nother level to this of getting data and not every doctor is going to want to be a part of this. Not every patient is going to want to be a part of this because not everybody wants all this information available. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, there are people that don't join Facebook. I don't want my business out there mm -hmm. are not on social media. So this is going to be the same thing about privacy and how much you're watching me. And from a physician office perspective, how much monitoring are they going to have to do to, to really make this digital therapy work mm -hmm. for whatever, whatever its intended purpose is. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is that I think the jury's still out. I think it's early days. Um, the technology's got to work. You've got to find the right patient who's willing to, and you got to find the right doctor who's willing to. Mm -hmm. You got to have an office staff that may have that infrastructure. And then, what are you going to do with it all? Mm -hmm. The more cumbersome it is for the doctor, you wonder how how quickly they will adapt. So, mm -hmm. I think it's fun times. Um, I think how does that play into payer? You know, and anyone who does payer marketing for these types of products, how do you sell this to? a payer organization on the outcomes, on the data? How do you say, well, if you reimburse for this product, this is what you're, we're going to learn and this is going to help you. Mm -hmm. How do you spin that? How much data How is needed? How are we going to use the data? Are we gonna use the data? Uh, exactly. Um, so there, I think I think there's it's, it's, it's interesting. It's a fun time, but there's a lot of unknowns. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm interested to see how, how it all goes. And as you said, there's not necessarily an ideal um, you know, condition uh, or disease state. It's more of like an ideal, ideal patient in terms of their willingness That's to engage right. with the technology That's right. on, the, on the patient side and on the physician and side And on well. the physician side, which is right. That's right. And in many cases, you could have not only the patient, but is the caregiver going to help as well, depending on the, the mm -hmm. condition, right? Um, and then is the office. You know, because the doctor is not going to sit there when, you know, they have a, he or she has a, a large book of clients or patients that, okay, let me go online and see what's going on with this patient. So who in the office is going to do that? Now, I would argue it's only hypothesis. I actually think this is where mid-level practitioners, the nurse practitioners and the PAs are probably going to play a larger role in digital therapeutics than an actual physician, mm -hmm. because these are the ones that are a little bit more time with these patients, you know, so this is my hypothesis. It's not proven yes. out yet, but I'd be interested to see the um, the adoption curve mm -hmm. um, by special by physician type and see. You might see more of sort of the total office call That's right. involved when it comes to digital therapy. Exactly. And selling it it has to. It has to. Right. Right. Okay. Great. So um, those are kind of early days you mm -hmm. know, for, for for those, and you know, for that matter, you know, in engaging with startups too, it's kind of it's been a few years since pharma started partnering more with startups. But we're seeing that more. In, in this area as well. Okay, let's move on to the speed round. Um, we're going to finish off with a couple fun questions. Uh, not that the previous several questions have not been fun, <laughs> April, but uh, these, this is they were we... thrilling, Mark. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so how do you unplug? How do I unplug? Um, I am an avid concert goer, I have to say. Yeah. Probably do three to four concerts a month. Mm -hmm. um, I will. I'm traveling overseas for a music festival in England, in London. Um, so that is that is sort of my zen. 
Nice, nice. Mm-hmm. If I may ask, what genre of uh, music do you enjoy? I I actually have a pretty uh, wide palette. Um, everything from you know classic rock like a Maroon Five. Uh, to you know, old R and B like an Earth, Wind and Fire, old '80s rap. Um, I like gospel music. I like a lot of British acid jazz music. I like um, uh, Latin jazz, um, contemporary oh, jazz, jazz actually, yeah. like a Joe uh, Joe Sample type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I, I kind of mix it up. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is my that is my zen because I really do feel like music. You know, these musicians are mastering their craft too, just like what we're trying to do. So I sure. can look at not just them performing, but really the whole production. And and it's amazing, you know, to see um, some newer artists, but also some of the the older ones. I mean, I remember seeing um, taking my father to go see Aretha Franklin. She is not mm-hmm. my cup of tea, but I can appreciate the artistry. Mm-hmm. Somebody who's been doing this for a long time and who had a twenty piece string, you know backup and um, just you know having everybody on their feet for three hours straight hmm. can appreciate yeah, it right. even though it's not my music <laughs> an audience um, and uh, you know I, at one time um, before I decided to go into journalism I really wanted to play like lead tenor for a Latin jazz ensemble mm. like, job um, really uh, so do you like going to the blue well, note or you have no time for it well I've, I had a very you know uh, short career going to to the Manhattan jazz clubs but um, just always I always like listen to jazz Latin jazz ensembles mm. because there's always a, a great horn section mm-hmm. it's such an important component you know of, of the music and, and the beat is just infectious infectious so um, and you don't, you don't see too many genres where the, the horn section is sort of they use a horn section number number one and number two it's really like plays a lead role. Yes. So I, I really admire that because I have an instrumental uh, woodwind background. Maybe Very we'll talk nice. About that maybe on the next podcast. Yes, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> this is about you. Uh, number two, uh, where have you traveled lately? Where have I traveled lately? Um, certainly throughout the U.S. Um, but if we were to go internationally, um, well, the Caribbean, I was. Sun never bothers me. Um, Bangkok, uh, Copenhagen, and uh, I think that's it for now. Um, okay, so um, you know it's been a fascinating conversation with you. I want to thank you for joining. Thank us. you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So we'll just wrap up with some housekeeping items. Um, the shortlist from the awards uh, goes up July 16th. You'll notice that we didn't talk about any of the work specifically because. Shortlist is, is not out for another couple of weeks yet. And um, the July issue content, uh, all the issue from our, our famous uh, T100, Top 100 Agencies issue is dropping the second week of July. So stay tuned for that coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, and finally, uh, we're having for the first time an issue party uh, to celebrate the uh, July issue with the members of the, of the Top 100 Agencies. And that will be the evening of July 11th uh, on, a, on a rooftop. Um, in Manhattan. Uh, so we look forward to celebrating with you all there. Um, and you can find out more information on all of the above on our website. And so um, that'll do it. Uh, I want to thank April again for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you all for joining us as well. Um, and um, so this has been Marcus Gowitz uh, for Larry Dobrow, Mickey Brown, April Mitchell signing off. We'll see you next week. Or actually, next week we're taking off for July 4th, I should mention. We'll see you next time on the MMM podcast. Take care, everybody. Thank you.